0: All right. Hey, y'all. This is John Lawrence with Anesthesia Guidebook. Before we jump into this episode, I want to tell you a little bit about a podcast that I was actually featured on a few weeks ago. It's called the Finding Genius Podcast by Richard Jacobs. Richard interviews experts in the fields of science and health to explore emerging topics from molecular biology to pathophysiology and technology. He reached out to me with an interest in talking about anesthesia, and we ended up working through a pretty good rundown on the fundamentals of anesthesia what anesthesia is, how it works, and all the various ways that anesthesia providers can keep patients safe and comfortable during surgeries and procedures. Now, I had no idea what Richard would ask me about. We actually talked a little bit about wilderness emergency medicine, too, based on my background teaching with Knowles Wilderness Medicine. But it was pretty fun to get back to the basics of anesthesia and to unpack what it is that we actually do as anesthesia providers. The interview is totally something that you could share with a friend or family member if they're wondering what exactly you do as a CRNA resident physician anesthesiologist. You can check the show out at Finding Genius Podcast. It was released on January 25th, 2021. There's no numbers to Richard's podcast. So January 25th, 2021, and it's called All About Anesthesia with John LaRance. So with that, let's talk about today's podcast. So today my guest is Dr. Chuck Frisch. He's a CRNA with over 35 years of experience in anesthesia who serves as the Director of Anesthesia Services at Box Butte General Hospital in Alliance, Nebraska. He's here to talk about rural independent CRNA practice. Dr. Frisch has been a longtime listener of the podcast, both from the Head of the Bed and Anesthesia Guidebook. And when he noticed that I hadn't covered this topic yet, he basically shot me an email and called me out on it. And Chuck was right. While I've had a bunch of independent CRNAs on the podcast to talk about everything from business and finance to regional anesthesia, I haven't actually taken the chance to talk specifically about the challenges and opportunities unique to CRNAs working in rural independent practices. One reason I haven't talked about independent CRNA practice yet is that Anesthesia Guidebook is designed as a resource for all anesthesia providers. I'm intentional about not making this podcast overtly political. Those podcast blogs and forums are definitely out there, and they're actually a little boring in my opinion. Arguing about whether or not anesthesia care in the United States is safe or high quality based upon who is providing it is just not that interesting. Anesthesia is safe. We have good data on that. Whether it's an independent CRNA, an independent physician anesthesiologist, or CRNAs and physician anesthesiologists working in a team together, anesthesia is generally very safe due to the evolution of technology, techniques, and the pharmacology involved and the evolution of training of anesthesia providers over the last 5,200 years. My goal in bringing you this podcast is for you to hear from a true master of anesthesia on what it's like and what it takes to work in a rural solo practice. CRNAs are an integral part of providing access to anesthesia services, airway management, and critical care in rural settings across the United States, where they provide their services independent of physician supervision. Without CRNAs like Chuck and his colleagues in Alliance, millions of patients nationwide would be without surgical, obstetric, and other anesthesia services close to home. Now, lots of physician anesthesiologists also practice in solo, rural settings, and many of the things Chuck and I talk about in this episode would be equally relevant to physicians who are considering moving into a rural practice setting. What we talk about are the unique challenges working in a small, rural setting, including patient screening for elective cases, How CRNAs are utilized throughout the hospital as airway and critical care experts, who your resources are, and what kind of mindset you need to succeed in a rural independent practice. I think you'll really enjoy hearing from Chuck, and I want to tell you a little bit about his background before we jump into the conversation. Chuck initially studied molecular, cellular, and developmental biology in college before switching gears to nursing school in an effort to get out of the solitude of research labs. He completed his associate's degree in biology in 1978 and a second associate's degree in nursing in 1979 at Mesa College, which is now Colorado Mesa University in Grand Junction, Colorado. In 1985, Chuck completed his bachelor's in anesthesia at Mount Marty College, which is now Mount Marty University, in order to become a CRNA. He then completed a master's degree in health administration in 1989, with the goal of one day becoming a chief CRNA. And after 15 years of working in an anesthesia care team alongside physician anesthesiologists, Chuck moved to Alliance, Nebraska to work in an independent anesthesia practice in 2000. While first a co-director of anesthesia following the retirement of his partner, He became the Director of Anesthesia at Box Butte General Hospital in 2002. Chuck then returned to school to complete his Doctorate of Nursing Practice in 2014 at Rocky Mountain University of Health Professions in Provo, Utah. He has served on numerous state association committees in Nebraska and served as the Director of the State Association for one term. Chuck is a Fellow of the American Academy of Pain Medicine, and served on the AANA's practice committee and helped write and verify the first NBCRNA pain management certification exam. He's been married for 43 years, has four children, two of whom are adopted internationally, and his first grandchild is due to be born actually at my local hospital here in Maine in June of this year. I'm stoked for you to hear Chuck's story and what it's like to work in a rural independent practice. And with that, let's get to the show. Well, Chuck, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast. Uh, Will you start off by telling the listeners a little bit about your practice setting? So what kind of hospital do you work in? How many ORs and CRNAs and that kind of stuff?
1: We're a critical access hospital. Um, We have three ORs. They run pretty busy most of the time. We have four CRNAs. Um, The reason we have four CRNAs is because we take call 24-7 in our hospital, and um, we have the day after call off.
0: Yeah, and what kind of cases are most common? What do y'all What do y'all do? usually in your practice,
1: well, we're a rural hospital, so we do a little bit of everything. We do major ortho, which includes all kind of totals. We do all kinds of orthoscopes. Um, we have a hand surgeon who does all the hand surgeries. And we have a uh, a foot orthopedic who does you know all kinds of foot surgeries. We have general anesthesia. We have uh, besides myself, we have a pain doc who does pain procedures. And we have general surgeons and, uh, we have a couple of family practice doctors who do OB.
0: Well, I'd love for folks to hear a little bit more about your career in anesthesia. So you've been doing this for decades at this point, but, um, where did you start your practice? And I mean, you, I think you've been doing this long enough to where you've got an interesting kind of winding path through your <laughs> educational program. So will you give us okay. a quick rundown on that as well?
1: Okay. I went to Mount Marty, um, College, which is now a University in Yankton, South Dakota, for my CNA training. I was the last class at Mount Marty to um, get a bachelor's degree. So from there, I went to Danville, Illinois, worked there for 15 years in a uh, very MD controlling practice. Um, got tired of that, started looking for an independent practice. And both me and my wife were from small communities, so um, we moved to Alliance 20 years ago. So I've been practicing anesthesia for. 36
0: years. Okay. Okay, great. And uh, so that's interesting. You got you got a bachelor's degree yep. as your CRNA degree.
1: Correct. After that, after my bachelor's as my CRNA degree, I got a master's of healthcare administration because my goal was always to be a uh, chief CRNA or, or director of anesthesia. And um, about five years ago, six years ago, I got my
0: DNP. Oh, that's great. So you got a bachelor's to be a CRNA. Then you went back for a master's of health administration and that was part of your path to become a chief. What drove you back to get a DNP and, and was there a focus area in that uh, doctorate degree?
1: Um, a lot of it was just self-satisfaction. I wanted to have a terminal degree in nursing. Also I had a little idea of uh, teaching, maybe not formal teaching, but you know, being a clinical instructor. Um, My focus when I was doing my DNP, my capstone project was for rural anesthesia, was directed at doing femoral blocks for transport of our fractured hips. Um, We don't do acute orthopedics here. So our patients were being transferred about 60 miles. And um, when I did my initial workup, the patients were getting very, very poor pain uh, management before they left. They were getting like three at all, and they were shifting them on these bumpy rural roads, uh, 60 yeah. miles and all they were getting. So, that was my focus, was doing femoral blocks. Back then, and back when I started, we didn't have ultrasound, so they were just nerve stimulator blocks. But in the course of doing my DNP, we found that the pain scales weren't really very adequate for what we were working on, so I developed a functional pain scale, and Yale um, took it on, and Called me and said, "Can we use this to um, further study on functional pain
0: scales?" And so they took my uh, original functional pain scale and ran with it. So that's sort of cool. Oh, that's interesting. And so, so what is that called now? Or can people access that in pain scale at this point?
1: Yeah, they can access. They, I think it's Yale's functional pain scale, or they can just okay. Google functional pain scale, and it's out there now. So,
0: oh, interesting. Yeah, well, nice work on that. That's that's very interesting. Uh, So let's talk a little bit. I know that the focus of this podcast is to talk about rural anesthesia and for CRNAs who are working in those practices. So will you tell us a little bit about the responsibilities of your CRNA team in terms of the services you provide? I mean, obviously you're providing anesthesia for the cases that you described, but are there other things that you cover or other services that you provide as being the only anesthesia providers in-house? Yeah,
1: we do cover OB, and that includes uh, epidurals and C sections. In our hospital, there's nobody that does airways except us, so they require us to be there for deliveries in case the baby needs to be resuscitated. So that's something a little different because um, we had no neonatal nurses or anybody trained in that field. Um,
0: so that's even for vaginal deliveries. Your yeah, on call. even
1: for vaginal deliveries. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even if we don't have an epidural and we have to come in for the deliveries, um, 90% of our patients get epidural, so it's not common that we have mother deliveries without an epidural. We're there for all all deliveries.
0: That's interesting. Uh, do you know how many deliveries or C-sections that you're doing on an annual basis, just for context?
1: Um, we do about 110, 120 deliveries a okay. uh, year. Um, we're at national average, about 20% C-sections. Um,
0: yeah, um, so OB also, OB is one service. What else do you all do?
1: We also cover the ER. We go to all codes codes all over the hospital and in the ER. We cover traumas because again we're the only ones to know how to innovate, and we're basically experts in fluid management and IV drugs for hypotension and stuff like that. Uh, we also do pick lines. We run a pain service. We write orders for ventilator management when the patient has to be ventilated. Occasionally, we most of our patients that are ventilated we send out because we just don't have this ICU staff. We don't have any ICU staff, but you know, out here in rural Nebraska, we get snowstorms um, and they can't ship people out, so yeah. we have to run. We have, we don't run the ventilator, but we have to run the ventilator settings, and we do that till the uh, air crews get in. Also,
0: so there's a little bit of a, a degree of screening and also determining what patients need to get transported to a higher level of care in terms of the hospital facilities and what they're able to manage.
1: Correct. We're a level four trauma center. The nearest other trauma center is a level two and that's like 60 miles away. And go to level one, we're looking at 150, 200 miles.
0: That's interesting.
1: So we have to really get them stabilized before so we
0: can ship. Right. And how does that influence your preoperative screening for elective cases that you're doing at the hospital? Are there screening criteria that you utilize that are unique because of uh, your access and some of the constraints in terms of the care that the hospital is able to provide?
1: Yeah. Um, as far as the anesthesia, all of us have good experience, but and we can probably get any patient through the anesthetic, but it's the post-op care that we have to worry about. So, we don't do any level fours or PHIS, except for emergencies. We're very careful with our cardiac screen because we have no internist. We have to act as the internist. Um, so And we don't want to be in the hospital 24-7. So we are very careful about our cardiac screen and our respiratory screen. It's not unusual that we have to order a cardiac or a respiratory consult. And we look at the ejection fractions, exercise tolerances, all those things. Our um, OR nurses act as pre-op operating and post-op nurses. So when they say patient pre-op, they're very good about coming to us and says, you know, this patient is short of breath, on exertion, um ejection fraction of 20%. What do you think? Should, should we do it here or should we ship it somewhere? Yeah. And, uh, yeah. And our docs, our surgeons are very good. We say we can't do it here.
0: They're very good. Says says, okay, well, we understand um, it's all right to ship it or yeah. take it somewhere. Yeah, right. Right. What are some of the other unique challenges that you face as working as an independent CRNA with no collaboration with physician anesthesiologists?
1: Lots of looking in books. You know, we get an unusual case. A lot of looking in books or on the internet seeing, you know, what's the current treatment besides our continuing education. We don't get a lot of education. So we're doing a lot of research ourselves to keep up on current trends and what's up there. You know, a lot of nights I'm the only one there, for a bad airway. So you have to have your plan A, plan B, plan C, how are you are going to handle that airway? And you know, you're the only one that can, can save this person. So it puts a little stress on you, but yeah, it's sort of fun.
0: Right, right, right. I'm, I'm curious to know a little bit more about your difficult airway management. Uh, airway management, obviously, is something that's important to all anesthesia providers and, and is yeah. a particular interest uh, to me in terms of uh, best practices and, and kind of thinking about it in terms of crisis management. So can you talk to us briefly about what those plan A, plan B, plan C's are? I mean, do you, you have video laryngoscopes available? Is that your first choice? Do you do you direct laryngoscopy most often, fiber optic intubations? I mean what, what kind of um, approach to managing difficult airways do you rely on most frequently?
1: Most frequently, we try to do direct laryngoscopies. We do have glidescopes both in the OR and the, in the emergency room. With the COVID pandemic, we uh, had problems getting disposable blades, so we got titanium blades for our glidescope now.
0: And are those reusable?
1: Yeah, they're reusable. Yeah. You
0: know, send them through um, the autoclave or something to.
1: Yeah, they do. They do some. I don't. I don't deal with that. So we just give them to the scrub techs and they. Okay. Um, take care of that for me. So they, they have they have some protocol. You know, I give them the protocol and they they follow it. So yeah, Because yeah, we're we're the low men on a totem pole out here in rural. Mer- you know, you guys get all the all the first supplies. We're a low men on totem pole since we only use you know twenty blades in two months. You know, so we, oh, we're low men on totem pole. So um, so um, yeah, we do glidescopes. I use the glidescope quite a bit in the in the ER. We have used quite a bit of indubitable maze or we'll put an lme in and put the fiber optic through it we've done quite a bit of uh, we all are pretty proficient of doing awake intubations and in my career you know i learned how to do retrograde intubations i don't know if anybody knows how to do those anymore so i have that in my back pocket with my some of my colleagues yeah um you know so we have all the tools and trades um we have a kit that has both a cut catechordectomy and a percutaneous catechordectomy in it, um, so we can use that. I've only used it twice since I've been here, but, you know, it's always available. So, And we have one in the OR ER and one in the ER. So and we have a lot of stock that we keep on, on hand that we never go through, but it's, you've got to have it type thing.
0: Yeah. Yep. And who would you say are your resources during emergencies? Are you, I mean, you're, you're talking about, sometimes you're the only CRNA in house. I mean, do you, during the day, do you rely on other CRNAs? Are the surgeons available to help the OR nurses? Uh, what's it like in terms of the crew in, in managing emergencies?
1: Like in the ER or in the, in the OR? Yeah, either. In the OR, our nurses help us immensely. When they come in. We get them trained of how to do it uh, and what goes on. Our scrubs are also can also run, get us the supplies we need. They know where everything's at. As far as having another CRNA handy, not very often. We're usually doing our own cases, so once in a while, if somebody's free, they'll they can help out. But you're usually it. Yeah. And that's the same in the OR. I mean, in the ER on the traumas. Our OR nurses come in and they usually are assigned to help us because they know. Oh, they know our Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Contextually, I mean, for our understanding is Nebraska a state where CRNAs can practice completely independently or physicians signing records for billing? Is it, a, is it an opt-out state? Can you talk a little bit it's, about that?
1: Yeah. Nebraska was the second opt-out state right after Iowa. Um, so yeah, we've been an opt-out state for a long time and, uh, nobody signs my notes. Nobody gives me orders. We write our own pre-op post-op orders. If patient needs scopolamine or something like that. We can order it to the community pharmacy. So we do all that. Our surgeons don't bother us at all for as far as anesthesia.
0: Yeah. They're not involved in
1: not, not a bit. They they just say, they just say, thank you for giving my anesthetic and, Come in and do it, and
0: they're out of there. So There you go. There you go. Can you tell us a little bit more kind of about the, the nuts and bolts of the practice? So it's four CRNAs working together. I mean, how is the billing managed, medications, and supplies ordered? Uh, I, I would, you know, for the listeners out there who may be thinking about going into a rural anesthesia practice, what kind of considerations would you want them to know about when they're thinking about working in that kind of setting?
1: It depends on the on the setting. I do quite a bit of locum, you know, different places around here. So it depends on the setting. Most places, pharmacy stocks are OmniCells. That's what we use for our, for our management. Pharmacy is pretty good about stocking them as long as we charge for it correctly. As far as supplies, uh, we have a purchasing department who stocks us. but We set the minimum amount that we have to have. As far as capital expenditures, as director of anesthesia, I uh, pretty well um, determine what we need. And I have a very good CEO who likes our CRNA services. So, uh, and she understands the risks and what we need. So, she she pretty well, I won't say gives us, but she pretty well lets us have what we need.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. So, you all are the only anesthesia providers in house, and obviously, you are instrumental in, in kind of understanding the supplies you need, the equipment you need, medications, those kinds of things. Tell us about troubleshooting things when things go down. So for instance, like if a, if an anesthesia machine has a malfunction or are you, you know, expert level on machine maintenance, are you consulting companies? How, do, how does that manage?
1: Two ways. Um, I am pretty good about figuring out what's going on with machine. So we do pretty well troubleshooting with machine. If we're something we can't figure out on our own, we call the service rep and uh, try to troubleshoot it over the phone. And I'd say probably, 80% of the time we can troubleshoot it over the phone. If not, we have a um, service contract that they have to fix the machine within twenty-four hours. So we notify him and he's up here the next
0: day to fix it. Yeah. And do you have a backup machine or if you if you lose a machine, does an OR go down? An OR goes down. Yeah, interesting. So yeah. I, I would imagine uh, that the routine maintenance is probably pretty important on those.
1: Oh, oh yeah. About uh Four years ago, we moved into a new OR suite and one of our um, ORs, fire sprinklers went off in the middle of the evening and totally ruined our machine and ruined all this stuff in the OR. Oh my gosh. So, yeah. Yeah. So we were down in OR for two months while so it replaced the OR. So wow. It was
0: pretty <laughs> yeah. That was in the new OR suite. That was just one OR?
1: Yeah. Well, it was. we had three ORs, but they did in one OR. So it just totally ruined that one OR. That one OR.
0: Wow. Yeah. Well, that, I'm sure that puts a crunch on when you lose uh, you know, 30% of your operating room capacity. Yeah, it really was a crunch. <laughs> wow. Wow. So you've been taking SRNAs, student registered nurse anesthetist from Mount Marty University, which uh, if the listeners remember is your alma mater, uh, yep. you, you've been taking them for the last several years. What kinds of things do you want those SRNAs to understand about your practice setting when they come and work with you?
1: We want them to learn the independence of being a CRNA, that they're not going to have backup, and not depend on another anesthesia provider to help you during your induction and emergence. Use your nurses as your resources. Also, as I tell them, plan, 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 you know, plan A, plan B, plan C, even on a, on a simple case, you know, um, a VMT, uh, you know, it's a five-minute case. But, you know, what happens if the kid gets a laryngeal spasm, what are you going to do? You know, you have no backup if you're there, you know, of course, as clinical preceptors, we're there, but, you know, think of what, if we would be here, what you're going to have to do. Um, Yeah. So have that, you know, it's, it's all, you know, plan A, plan B, plan C and have them all ready to go if you need them.
0: Right. Right. That's interesting. Do you think SRNAs are prepared for that kind of mindset shift? Can you talk a little bit more about that? If they're interested in entering independent CRNA practice as part of their career, um, you know, how would they approach that from um, the mindset of working independently?
1: First of all, during their um, residency, get in as many cases as you can try to get all the difficult airways you can because you're it. And, you know, so you really have to be prepared for that and just be, confident in your skills you know we're all taught well and we have the skills you just have the confidence that you can do it by yourself that is it's no big deal to do this type of thing this just do it and just have the confidence in yourself the sRNAs we've had have all said they love coming down here because it's totally different you know when I have the sRNA in my room I stand back and just and I'm observe them but I don't step in and do anything if they start going down the wrong pathway Unless they're injuring the patient, they're going to go down a long pathway till they figure out what what they did wrong, and uh, and that's the learning experience. Um, you know, I'm not going to let them get into a patient's going to be in danger, but if they fall the wrong pathway, they're going to learn. They're going to learn from that.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty valuable lesson, I think, when you have that experiential learning of being uh, totally in charge of what's going on in the anesthetic. Yeah, yeah. What was the transition like for you? So you spent 15 years or so in a anesthesia care team model, and then you moved into an independent practice, uh, in your anesthesia practice. So what was that transition like? And are you happy that you made that move?
1: Um, the first month or so, it was sort of scary. Cause like I said, I did always, most of the time I always did have backup, but, um, I think over the 15 years I had been there, seen that, done that. So I was pretty confident in my airway skills, my IV skills, you know, my anesthesia skills. I forgot the rest part of your question.
0: <laughs> are you satisfied with uh, the transition, making the transition?
1: Oh yeah. Um, I'm very happy. It's, like I said, um, both me and my wife are from a small town. It was great li- raising our kids in a small town where they could ride their bikes to school, walk to school. I'm an Indian practitioner. Uh, you know, I, I'm able to use my skills day in and day out the way I want to use them. You know, I'm able to retire now if I wanted to, but I enjoy doing this work. I enjoy my patience. So I'm going to stay around for 1,528 more days.
0: <laughs> 1,528, huh? Yeah. What, what's the date on the calendar if we were to count out?
1: April 10th, 2025. That'll be 40 years of being a CRNA. And that's long enough.
0: Wow. Wow. So 40 yep. years uh, solid, straight through. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's incredible. I wish you I wish you the best. Thank you. Your last uh, 1,500 or so days.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. Yeah. So you have seen an incredible amount of change in the way that anesthesia is practiced, and you've oh, yeah. uh, seen a big change in your own personal career. So I want to ask you just a couple yeah. of questions about that as we close out here. So okay. one is, you know, you received a bachelor's degree as your CRNA training. It obviously then progressed to a master's degree uh, in the early 90s and has been that way for, close to 30 years, and now, as we're both aware, the entry to practice degree is changing in 2022 to a DNP or Doctorate of Nursing Practice. So what do you think about that transition and that trajectory over your career and what that has meant for the anesthesia community?
1: I think it's a good progress. I learned so much during my DNP about research and how to evaluate research and implement research that it's made a huge impact in my practice over the six years. And so I think it's a great thing. So CRNAs will now know how to really implement good research into their practice. You know, there's a lot of research out there that's not so good, not so practical. And this way they can evaluate the research that
0: really make a change in their practice. Yeah, that's interesting. And that's after, I mean, you you got your DMP almost 30 years in, is that correct? As a CRN, yeah.
1: yeah, 20 yeah, 28 years in or so, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's fascinating. And you still found uh, an immense degree of value out of it.
1: Oh, yeah. Uh, immense. Well, it's like during, the, during this um, COVID pandemic, we have no interns in our hospital, so we were basically appointed to be the interns in the hospital and then trying to keep up on the research. I was able to evaluate which research was really valuable and which one was uh, not so good, you know, that type of thing.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's great. And thinking about this almost forty-year career in anesthesia, what do you think some of the biggest changes have been in the time that you've provided anesthesia in terms of either the monitoring or the pharmacology or just the way that we do anesthesia?
1: Um, I'm gonna many blood pressures we used to take pressures by hand. Um, yeah, that's pr-
0: that's I... pretty convenient, huh? Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> When I when I was a student, you have a little valve. You switch between your precordial in your blood pressure, right? um, a little three-way valve. When you got to be a senior student, you got a thing called a PLOS valve, which I'm sure nobody has ever heard of except this older guys, which was cool because you didn't have to switch the valve. But um, besides that, having SAO2s and... um, You're talking about
0: uh, about pulse oximetry.
1: Pulse oximetry. Pulse oximetry and uh, Intel co 2 that's made a huge change, made it much safer. Back in the olden days, we'd see patients you know, get blue and we turn up the oxygen. Well, now when I see the pulse oximetry, you know, down to 80 or so and they're not blue, I was wondering how low did they really get? To really
0: <laughs> blue, you know? So just, just to recap, you're saying automated blood pressure checks, pulse ox and in tidal CO2 have, have been kind of nice. They've been kind of nice additions yeah. to your anesthesia practice.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, they yeah.
0: yeah. yeah folks there. like myself and in and all the other CRNAs who've been graduating the last, you know, couple of decades, probably, probably cannot even imagine doing anesthesia without those things.
1: Oh yeah, I know. It's, I go I go to Honduras to do um, volunteer anesthesia, and sometimes we have a pulse oximetry. So we most of the time we have a pulse where We bring our own uh, pulse oximetry, but some of the machines down there don't have. Uh, gas analyzers. So it's, it's a major shock to them, not to be able to see the gas analyzers on, on the, uh, on the machine that they have to figure out what the concentration is by themselves. You know, I think they all have, um, Intel CO2s, but sometimes the gas analyzers are not the best working thing. So it's always yeah. a shock to the new guys who don't have that. So,
0: right, right, right. What do you think about pharmacology? I man? what do you think have been some of the, the big changes?
1: Um, propofol.
0: Yeah. Where would you uh, put, like, uh, IV Tylenol, um, Sugamidex? I mean, those have been some recent ones that have been pretty impactful.
1: Sugamidex, for sure. Um, IV Tylenol, it's there, but I nah. don't, see the, I don't <laughs> see the difference with it besides giving it PO pre-op. You know, sure. it's there. Um, we use it, but I don't think it's that big of a change in our practice anyway. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: But Damodex for sure, has made a big change in your practice just because you can reverse somebody with, you know with a non-depolarizer i don't i very seldom now even even use sucks um just cuz i i can reverse somebody with the, the non-depolarizer
0: yeah yeah that's great well thanks for that kind of tour of of history a little bit um <laughs> is there anything else that you'd like to say either about you know your path in anesthesia uh looking back over that or specifically about the challenges and considerations for crnas who are thinking about getting into rural independent crna practice
1: Just remember that if you're you're going to go rural, your resources are not there, but you get a lot of reward. Patients know who you are. They appreciate your care. The docs all appreciate your care. It's a very rewarding practice. You just have to remember that you're it, but everybody appreciates you. The doctors appreciate you. Our hospital administration appreciates us. You know, it's not unusual for me to go out on errands and be stopped by Everywhere I go, it says, Oh, hi, Chuck, how you doing? I remember when you get my anesthetic. And, you know, that's pretty rewarding. Yeah. Um, you know, that you you have a personal relationship with most of your patients. The other thing is, you know, if you want, you know, the shopping and the restaurants and that type of life, real not going to be for you. Uh, yeah. I've had some students who says, Oh, y'all like real practice. And they finally have to go two hours to get an Italian dinner. They don't want to stay long.
0: So you have to remember that type of thing, too. Right. So not for everybody, but uh, but certainly rewarding if you're into working in rural settings and where you get to know the hospital administrators, the patients, the staff, uh, the surgeons, that kind of thing.
1: And a good place to raise your kids. You know, uh, my, my kids rode their bikes to school. We'd very seldom keep our doors locked. It's just nice rural communities are, you know, a change of pace and good little America. <laughs>
0: There you go. Well, Chuck Fresh, it's been an absolute pleasure to chat with you. I really appreciate you reaching out to me about uh, this topic that we haven't discussed so far on the podcast. So pleasure to chat with you about your practice and about your path in anesthesia. I really appreciate you taking the time. No problem, John. It's nice talking to you. Hey, y'all. John here. If you're digging the show, will you take a couple of minutes and drop a review of Anesthesia Guidebook on Apple Podcasts? Your comments and ratings help other people trust the show. Also, send a link to the podcast to your classmates and colleagues. Word of mouth is the best way for Guidebook to grow. Thanks so much, and I'll see you next time.